All religion that is created by humans outside of Christianity has one common denominator. It's based on one's personal merit, if I were to boil it down to the differences from Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, they all have the same common theme. How one reaches their final destination or acceptance is by the moral behavior to a set of standards. Grace is not necessarily absent from these systems, uh, but it, and, and it might be mentioned often, but the ground upon which one stands in their favor before God is always pointing back to their effort or to their merits. And from all that I've read and seen, I think it's safe to say that grace terrifies the human heart. Grace leaves no room for self-worth or boasting. When one is in the midst of their life, if their life is falling apart, grace is not the rebound story that we want to hear. We've all heard these stories, and we all love them. Movies are made about them. The person who destroys their life and then picks themselves back up and rebuilds it piece by piece, and we watch and we rally and we're excited for them. And somewhere in the story, someone should show them kindness and help them with a fresh start. But the story is about their grit, their guts, and the glory of making themselves back into something out of nothing. So rebound stories by design are motivational. The point and application is, look how I destroyed my life and then rebuilt it again. And the application is this. You can do it too. Grace is the exact opposite of this message. Look how I can't save myself, which is the last three songs we just got done singing about. Look how I cannot save myself. And the message of those who live in grace is neither can you. We're not motivating you to try harder is the message of the gospel, or truly of those who understand the difference between the law and the gospel. I mean, in its technical term, grace means unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. To receive grace means you don't deserve it. Grace leaves you speechless and humble. This is why the gospel should never cause one to boast in their own works. Now, I've never found another religion outside of Christianity that bases the entire message or the entire system upon grace alone is the key. Grace alone. That humans can be accepted, blessed, and have, and have eternal security in their acceptance before God by grace alone. This is what makes the gospel so hard for humans to grasp. Even for Christians, we wrestle with the implications of the gospel. We are hardwired toward this merit-based system. Security is found when we can claim at the smallest level that we have some involvement with it. To be saved and accepted by God... The message of the gospel is, you must live by grace alone, otherwise you cannot be saved. This is what, this is what the life of Jesus caused such a great uproar. The rich young ruler asking Jesus, I've done all of this, what else must I do to be saved? And Jesus does not give the man grace, he gives him law 
to crush him underneath the law. Now, there are no exception. There's like no exception clauses in case grace fails. And this is what we're always looking for. And what we are told is that it's either grace or nothing. To be the child of God, you are required to give your entire life to God and accept the fact that you will never look to your he, will never look to you or accept you. So I know I've, I've, I've like, I'm pounding this home, but I want you to feel this foundation because this is what he's about to go after, the writer of Hebrews is about to go after in our next section. The reason this is hard, grace is hard, and, it, and it, that it feels too good to be true, Nothing in this world works this way. Nothing. No strings attached always feels like there's invisible strings attached. Uh, in the world of, of Facebook or uh, emails or advertising, you see like free Tundra. Just retweet this. And you're like, yeah, all right. There's always, or you get the phone call. Hey, you're the winner. And then they're wanting your social security number and your bank account number. I'm the winner of what? Theft. We can feel it. It's been taken advantage of. We always feel like there's something around the corner that's going to get us. So the, the phrase is, what's the catch? Grace feels like a scam waiting to happen. Grace breeds skepticism in us. Well, the preacher here in Hebrews, he is bringing this message home with great passion, trying to convince the readers He's trying to break down the walls of legalism, the legalism that's in our heart by nature. This is what's driving them back. They don't feel that grace is enough. They, are, they feel that it's safer to go back to where they have some measure of control of their destiny. And he's breaking this down verse by verse. And so this is where we are going to find ourselves being uh, picked up, uh, picking back up here in chapter 12. In verse 12, before we begin reading, the writer uses some many different word pictures and illustrations from the Old Testament that we've made reference to for the last few weeks to prove that one can find their safety and security in Christ alone, which is the entire purpose of the book. So in Christ, by His grace, they will be saved, sanctified, and glorified from beginning to end. So the writer's one aim is that they would, quoting verse 2, look unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of their faith. So this is where we have, so the, the whole book up to this point, he is down into what's called, he's, he's pressing him into the finish line. So he's using this language of running a race, and we're not going to take time to redo the whole entire chapter, but I will reread for us. Uh, so he's motivated and said, your eyes should be focused on Jesus, you're looking to Christ, um, and in this moment, he is, he is speaking to their humanity. We would all agree, yes, we need to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I guarantee you, not one of you did that fully this week. Because we all struggle against our doubt and fear and anxiety or pride. So what he does is he gives us these encouragements and to so what we'll do is read verses 12 through 17. I'm going to do a little bit of review because it will help us explain 15 and 16 this, uh, this morning. So it begins in verse 12. So here's our motivation. God loves you. Look to Jesus. The Father will discipline you out of love, not out of anger. 
And our response to this is, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So as a reminder here, he is not talking to you as individual. He's talking to you as body members. Just as a, to go back, when he talks about lift your, that is plural, he's not talking about you individually. He's talking to the body of believers, those who are reading this. So the context is corporate together. So let's use that as our context going forward into verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unlike, uh, sorry, or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The writer points to what sustains us, if we're going to conclude, and then we'll explain. The writer points to what sustains us against sin and temptation. If you go back to the beginning of verse 15, what is it that sustains us? It's grace. Grace. Read verse 15 again. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, as I was studying this, many translators commented or pointed out that the Greek word here, it's translated into three words, see to it, but it's one Greek word. And the, the way it's um, used often or another way of transcribing it is to exercise oversight. To exercise oversight, it's this instruction. Oh, there's a cliff back here. There's instructions. Sorry, if I fall over, that's not on purpose. Uh, (laughs) um, So what what are you saying here? There's two observations I want to make as it relates to this command. First of all, we have to remember it's not... Not individually, we're reading this. We're reading this corporately. We're reading this as a, as a body of believers. So see to it that no one fails. So use or exercise oversight. Be watchful of one another that none of us fails to obtain the grace of God. Here's the observation. Number one, the writer has already pointed out that the race that we are running as Christians is not self-focused but one where we looking or we are looking to help and strengthen each other, protecting each other from what may cause us to fall into injury. So remember back when he says, lift your drooping hands, and it says to straighten the paths so that those who are lame may not be put out of joint. So he's continually talking about there's not only we are we're removing distractions, removing anything that could cause someone to stumble spiritually, but he continues to say, Not only this, but we need to be watchful for those who are not receiving the grace of God. Now, this can be confusing. Well, how do you receive something that is unmerited? Um, Well, this will go, I think, into point two. We are to look out for each other and making sure none of us are failing to receive the grace of God. And in context, we see what he means here is, I think, it's in reference to what he's given us throughout the book, which is the preaching of the word, the gathering around the table in prayer. Here's an example of this. If you turn back to chapter 10, an example of what he means by this, look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. For we who, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir one another up into love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one of all the more as the day drawing near. So you already have before in this letter, remember it's one letter, one context, one sitting, he's already said that we are gathering around, we're holding to what we know to be true of Christ, our confession, the one who is faithful. Consider how to take that confession and encourage one another and do not neglect to meet with each other. And so we are gathering around the word of God. And so I think when he's talking about this command to fail to remain in his grace, I think he's what he means here is the means of grace. This is what the reformers uh, started to use these languages called ordinary means of grace. And what they would refer to and point to in scripture is the word preached, the corporate word preached, uh, the table that we are going to take today, and the pr- and prayer. That doesn't mean that your individual Bible reading can't be a means of grace or even your individual prayer. Of course they can, but they aren't the primary means that God uses to receive his grace, the ongoing grace that strengthens our faith. We must not confuse that with our saving grace that's gifted to us, but the grace that continues to give us the energy to continue to fight, that comes to us by these ordinary means. So look at verse 15 again. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. We read this last week in Deuteronomy where he's referencing the root of bitterness here. He's talking about poison and how Israel had been poisoned in their uh, teaching that false teachers have come in and were swaying them to go back to to worshiping idols. And even uh, worshiping idols that were um, causing them to, to fall into sexual sins, which he even points out in verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral. And it's obvious that we are to refrain from all kinds of um, moral sins. The Bible points out that there's many different levels in which they, um, uh, I guess what I can say is there's, there's a lot. There's a list here we could go down. I think we're all pretty aware of what these sexual sins might be. What he, but the point of what he's making here, and this is why he doesn't list them all, the point of what he's saying here is to take special care as to how we battle these temptations. And what he'll do is he'll make reference to sexual sins, and then he kind of just he wraps all other sins underneath it here in a moment. But the point is that he's not pointing at the effort or exertion of fighting against sins. So what he does not say is, this is how you fight against sin, and then gives you a list of all the do's and don'ts. He begins it with the instructions of, make sure everyone is remaining in God's grace, receiving the grace continually. The danger is to think that this instruction means you must try harder to stay out of morality. A good example, Paul does the same thing. If you want to write this down, I'll just read it for the sake of time. Colossians chapter 2, he's dealing with people who are being told to live by the different certain dietary laws or really asceticism of where they are supposed to be beating their body down because they're trying, with good intentions, they're trying not to live immoral lives. And this is what Paul says. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Thankfully, Paul did not end his letter there. He continues to write, chapter 3, verse 1. 
If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What's another way of saying that? Seek the things of Christ. That would be listening to the word of God, being taught over you, receiving the table, praying. If you have been raised with Christ, seek grace, seek God's word, set your mind on things that are above. What's above? It's God in his grace and his kindness and his mercy towards us. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. So we fight the flesh with grace is what he's saying. I'll say more about this in a moment, but I want to finish his thought here. Look at the next section of chapter uh, verse 16. Or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, that he sought it with tears. A lot of people have gotten tripped over this, and it was interesting studying this. But I think if you remember, these are people who know the Old Testament. He's already made so many Old Testament references. They would know this story. It's a part of the law, part of the first five books of the law. I think the point of it here is that uh, Esau abandoned his inheritance, that which was given to him, that which was the entirety of his life. He abandoned it for a bowl of soup. He treated lightly that which he should have respected. And so what I think the point of it is saying is don't give in to morality, use grace to fight it, and don't treat grace like Esau treated his birthright. Hopefully that makes sense to you. I've seen this, unfortunately, way too many times while I've been in ministry where we get distracted by sin. We get distracted by the warnings. The Bible is very um, strong in its warning about sin, about how enticing it is, how entangling it is, that the, the Satan is the, the father of all lies. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Uh, we have all felt the pull and the ploy of sin. Uh, if you take sin lightly, you are but one moment away from being pounced by it. Uh, sin is nothing to take lightly. You should not play with it. You should not toy with it. Um, and what's, what he, what is happening here is the writer, it's, it's so hard for them to understand they are law driven. They're being driven towards grace. They don't want to live in moral life. So he says, don't live in a moral life. But the way in which you do that is by grace. It's by staying in his grace. Um, when we stop emphasizing the grace of God in our life and we start using law, in my experience, you lower the law and you eventually become okay. Well, at least I am not doing this. And what happens is sin compounds on itself. You know, I, I've never met a man who had an affair who had no thoughts of an affair and then the next day had an affair. They compound. Uh, when someone decides to be dishonest or to steal or to lie or to gossip, it all begins to build one little moment at a time. And in those cases, what I have seen is that there's not an emphasis of constantly running to the throne of grace, reminding yourself of your need and the dangers of, the, of, of sin, not because I'll be condemned by it, but because I can be entrapped by it. So he's saying, don't be foolish like Esau and abandon grace. And treat it so, uh, so uh, like it can be thrown aside because this is what they want to do. They want to throw Christ aside and the grace of Christ and they want to run back to the law. 
And actually in chapter 6 in Ephesians, he gives a very, very strong warning saying, if you abandon Jesus after knowing and hearing and seeing the gospel and you walk away from him, you have no other hope. I think he's referencing this here again because he says... Uh, even though he tried to repent, he found no penance, even though he sought it with tears. If you try and find your way into acceptance with God through any other means outside of the grace of God, you can even um, uh, weep with tears. You won't find it. And so it's, it's a very strong warning that the way in which we live and the way in which we fight sin is always by grace alone. Let me read to you real quick. Uh, this is back in Hebrews chapter 4, if you want to write it down. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. Again, this would have been read a couple of minutes beforehand as they were hearing it. He says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now, we've all heard this verse, right? We love this verse. But it's the last three words we don't pay attention to. Time of need. Well, when do you need grace and mercy? Do you ever think about that? When do you need it? If you're not a sinner, you don't need mercy. And if you're righteous, you don't need grace. So when do you need it? When you're a sinner and without righteousness. What does he tell the readers to do? Confidently run into the presence of the Father when you are in need. What do we normally do when we find ourselves in a time of need? We wallow. We then figure out how we are going to fix the mess. And then we go to God with our plan. Sounds just like the prodigal son. He says, I will go home to my father and I will uh, ask to be his servant. I mean, he has this list of things. And what happens when the son gets there? He never gets the opportunity to tell his dad what he, his, his father does. It completely ignores him. Because you do not go to the father with your righteousness or your plan of how you're going to clean things up. He says, you run to the father when you are in need of mercy. That's forgiveness. And you understand you lack righteousness. That's grace. Another verse that I've loved and becomes very precious to me is James 4, 6. In the midst of all of the... James is just pounding them. It's like, you all, you, you, as a church, you all are messed up. He's going after them because they were. They were a really messed up church. And at the end, or right in the middle of him just kind of pounding them, he says, but he gives more grace. <laughs> he doesn't point them to the law to correct their issue. He's saying you're wrong here, you're wrong here, you're wrong here. The way in which you treat each other, the way in which you're handling money, the way in which you're giving favor to one another. And in the midst of all of that, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. One other one. This is Paul, Romans chapter 5. He says this in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more. This is why every week I want you to feel the weight of your sin. This is why you must confess your sin. This is why I will point out to you every week, you did not love God as much as you should have, and you have not loved neighbor as much as you should have. Because if you feel the weight of your failure, what will you do? You'll, Paul's words will be precious. Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So this morning, with full confidence, I can give you the truth that the Bible says you must find your way back to God, and the way in which you stay within God's presence is not by sheer discipline, and it's not by sheer effort, it's not by moral improvement and moral obeying. He says the way in which that we enter in and the way in which we stay is by what? It's by grace. Grace alone. The hardest part about the grace of God is that there are no limits. And I know every, every single one of you probably felt a shrill go up your spine. John, there has to be a limit. According to Paul and James and Hebrews, there is no limit to God's grace towards sinners. That is, everyone's like, but what's the catch, John? There is no catch. Because if there was a limit, I promise you, your pastor would find it. And he would be without hope. The only thing that keeps us motivated to know that when we fail, we can run back to the Father with confidence, without a plan of moral improvement. We run back to him and say, Father, I am here to receive that which is limitless. Your grace. And according to Hebrews, it's very obvious you aren't to run back out headlong back into sin. He's actually saying, remain in grace so that you refrain from sin. So resting in grace means you find your satisfaction in Christ instead of sin. This is probably what's been the hardest for me in my transition from, I, I came from, um, where we mentioned grace, but we lived in law. And now I live in grace. For me, every day is the satisfaction of knowing Jesus is enough. He has required, he has met all requirements. Nothing is left for me to do as it relates to my relationship to Jesus and God. Nothing is left. Now there's much required between me and you. But there's nothing required between me and the Father. And so I receive grace. I rest in grace. I'm satisfied in Christ and who he is and the hope that I have to come. And from that, I fight. I strive. I look around and I pick you up. You pick me up. I consider how to strengthen you. You consider how to strengthen me as we await not the utopian here, but we await the joy of being in the new heavens and new earth with God. Well, as we get ready for communion we do this every week. We feel that it's encouraging for us to participate in the Lord's table because it causes us to stop and be reminded that it is by His grace, through the blood shed, through the sacrifice, that we are strengthened in our faith. And I think it, it does us well, for those of you that might be visiting, to understand that we do not come to the table because we feel as if that is our salvation. We do not come to the table because we think the bread and the juice somehow transforms us from death into life. We are described, as Jesus says, we are to eat and drink so that we might be strengthened. One must be alive in order to participate. So if you aren't sure of your salvation, if you aren't sure, yes, I have been saved by Christ through faith alone, we would ask you to talk to one of us before you participate in this because we do not want you to be confused. And if you're here to sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I, I, I'm not worthy to take it this morning. Well, unless you are openly trying to hurt someone in this church, that's the context that Paul is speaking to, then no one's worthy of the table. 
You don't come to the table because you're worthy. You come to the table because you're hungry. You are without. You understand that unless you feast on Jesus, you have nothing. And so this morning we have received grace by his word. And now we're going to receive grace. And we believe that through the teaching of the scriptures, that as we participate, we hear God's word proclaimed over these elements, that the spirit comes and he strengthens our faith. It's not just a symbol. It's not just a remembrance, but the Holy Spirit actually does his work of strengthening our hearts and our minds. And so we trust that this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that through the means that hopefully our We have trusted you more this morning. We ask now, Lord, that even if we heard nothing and we were completely distracted, that we will hear this, that you love us because of what Christ is for us, not because of who or what we have done. In Jesus' name, amen.